Welcome to Method in Madness and today's episode is going to get even more mad because today's guest is witty, funny, loves storytelling at the same time is very very hard working. Her name is Sarah Burbage. Sarah Burbage, a TV and radio reporter, a news reader, turned live events producer, turned head of change. Sarah's career has followed a Bridget Jones to W1A trajectory. Currently she's part of a team focused on future of work at BBC and she's also a co-founder of A Life More Extraordinary, a trustee for mental health and charity uh, Soulscape and a champion uh, for 223days.com. She has so many ideas, she has so much positivity, she has so much energy to give to the world. Therefore I cannot wait to have this conversation started because trust me this is one of the most mad episodes of Method in Madness. Fasten your seatbelt as we welcome Sarah. This is Method in Madness. Welcome to Method in Madness, Sarah. How are you doing today? Oh, great to be here. I'm good, thanks, Savvy. Yeah, not bad. Summer holidays have begun, so um, we're juggling sort of like children and going to festivals and Euro Disney next uh, weekend. So it's a busy, busy time, but a bit of work in between. Absolutely. How are you? I am doing very well. Same here. Summer is a very good time to be in Europe where it's warm, it's nice. And more excitingly, I get to talk to wonderful people like I'm doing right mm-hmm. now. So it makes my day, my week incredible. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, uh, for people who are uh, listening, I met Sarah a couple of weeks back, actually, maybe a month or two back at an event where I was completely blown away by her speech, her presentation, her storytelling mm-hmm. and also humor, both on stage and off, ta- off stage. And I was like, I need to talk to her. Mm-hmm. So. Um, Sarah, you, maybe you want to tell us a little bit about your journey. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. So, um, um, so I'm Sarah Burbage, and probably by the way you said I say that, you might even guess. Um, I have I started off um on radio and TV as a journalist. Um, some might say Bridget Jones is the kind of like comparison here, um, and that was my nickname. I feel like I was maybe her before she was. Um, in the newsroom and I sort of like did that as a as a young reporter um, straight out of uni having done English literature um, and did radio and then TV um, sort of locally got to sort of like cover every story going um, and have a lot of fun in between um, then I kind of went to work on bigger projects um, for the BBC um, centrally um, in London so kind of went from kind of regional journalism to working on the Olympics actually at the time it was 2012 um, so I've done sort of seven years as a reporter and then I sort of made a move towards um, production and big ideas that's when I went on sort of the Olympics and bringing big ideas together and then I also was um, deputy editor at BBC News School Report um, because I came up with a big idea for them for the Olympics and then got asked to go on them do it and that was great fun so seven years kind of producing big live events um, and then my further seven years, because I am only 21 years old, if you're tossing these up. Um, <laughs> so, but my, I have a 21 year career, I suppose. Um, so I, that, that next seven years was 
really um, a move into change management and more strategic kind of works. So I've kind of done the shift. If, if you if you know your, your programs, then Bridget Jones to W1A, which is a bit of a spoof. It's a comedy all about kind of the BBC and a, a look at itself and takes the mickey of itself. That essentially is my life now. I'm sort of like the naughty one in the boardrooms, maybe. Um, and the kind of like um, a little bit still mischievous, but trying desperately savvy to be a grown up. So my job role now is head of change. And I work in product and technology group and I work with them on their challenges around culture and collaboration. Again, bringing things together. Um, so kind of, you know, making things happen. Fantastic. That's that's a uh, buffet of many things uh, that you've done. And I, oh, I love a meze. I love a tapas. And I think it's the naughtiness that always keeps uh, you and people with your kind of energy afloat because, yeah, life is too short to be serious, you know? Why so serious? It's always good to be naughty and a little bit uh, fun and humor. That's just makes the boat sail, right? Yeah, I think so. I think I, I mean, I've, I've always been one of those people that I hope I'm not too irritating, but I do kind of wake up optimistic. I remember um, you know, driving, doing a school run with my mum and she would put Radio 2 on and I'd just be chatting and buzzing and like looking at things around me. And she'd say, should we just listen to the radio, Sarah, and wake up? Um, so sometimes I'm, yeah, I do wake up energetic and, and I now have that happening to me. And I do see how exhausting it can be because I have a seven-year-old son who wakes up with a, <laughs> wakes up with a million questions, mostly at 5.30 every morning. Um, but yeah, I do. I wake up energetic and optimistic, but I think, I think that kind of core joy, it doesn't mean I've always got, it doesn't mean I'm always happy. Mm-hmm. I think it just means that I know it's, I know it's important. And Seeing as we're bringing my kids in, my five-year-old girl gave me an insight on this as well, Sabi, recently. <laughs> and I think it's really important that we kind of gather our insights from everywhere. Absolutely. But um, we were watching Cinderella and, mm-hmm. and have courage and be kind is the big theme in Cinderella, um, as Cinderella's mother tells her. And so I was talking to Gracie, my five-year-old, afterwards and saying, what would, your, what would be your message? What would be your motto? Um, what do you think is important, Gracie? And so I said, maybe do a drawing. What do you think? And um, and she's um, so then she drew this dancing girl, mm-hmm. which is beautiful. And she wrote the words alongside it: "Joyful is important." <laughs> she couldn't spell important just yet, but she'd given it a really but, great shot. <laughs> she knows what is important, even if she can't spell it. But that's like she knew what was important, and exactly. I think it sounds even better. Joyful is important. <laughs> Wow. So you have wisdom all around you. That's amazing, Sarah. Yeah, yeah. And I think sometimes we always just, um, it's a good reminder for me um, having sort of like my children around me. Um, not too much during lockdown because that was too much. And I was hiding in a car and um, trying to do Zoom meetings just because the Wi-Fi would stretch. But um, I think sometimes I think you've kind of got a position where you get little reminders and little nudges. And I think that's what that was. And I do think, yeah, joyful is important. Absolutely. It's very important. <laughs> um, you, you, you've been, uh, like you mentioned, you're working for BBC. And I think you mentioned a lot of 
part of your career you've been also in the broadcasting which is mm. which is very um appealing to many people who have that that aspiration and i'm sure it has it's it's an amazing journey to do that but it also has its own challenges in in your journey what were the uh, the highs and the challenges that you faced in your role when you were in the broadcasting uh, space Yeah well I've had I mean I've had such an exciting career and um I always look back on it and think there've been some amazing moments where you know I've accidentally ended up at the front of the torch relay um because our we couldn't get our hire car to work and we're hopping along going oh my goodness we've got to get there before they do and oh dear it looks like we might be the beginning of the parade so some really funny moments but, but actually essentially doing really um rare and kind of privileged things um but I think being a a journalist I just have a real love for content but a love for when I say that because that's already a buzzword isn't it mm-hmm. I have a love for stories yeah and I think that's what's been fundamental really and grounding throughout my career is like it's been always been about the sharing the story yeah. um and I think kind of you know when you hear something and i think that's what it is you know i i do essentially say that you know i you, do you really want to tell me that i am a broadcaster because if it's got a good line to it then i i want to share it you know yeah. um i'm i am good at keeping secrets too <laughs> just as my disclaimer but i think i when i hear something exciting or when i hear something really important or some a really injustice that needs solving um and a story that needs sharing i i can't not and i think that's kind of the that's the thing that I've always enjoyed the most is mm-hmm. hearing somebody share a story and then being able to give them a means to do so so whether yep. it's you know sometimes it's the things that go unnoticed actually you know one of the most powerful pieces or a piece I'm most proud of was a really small um, moment in time and um, and I think you know we were focused on homelessness and we I basically just observed a moment during a day um when I think I got off the bus and saw a man from a bar always take a cup of tea to to this lady on the streets and i basically was working in radio at the time and i just i asked her if i could record her story and sort of what happened we just called it a cup of tea mm-hmm. <laughs> but i asked her what happened at this time of the day and I asked her all about her and she had aspirations to be a mechanic and you know she was just on hard times at that time and then i recorded him and sort of asked him why he was doing this and he said it was you know it was the best conversation of his day and then we interwove those stories and hearing them bounce off each other and hearing the significance of a really small story but a you know a real significant one to me and i just think yeah being able to sort of see and share those things that's what i really enjoyed most as well as the big live funny mm-hmm. you know moments you know of having a big idea and saying let's fly Pansy Bear in by helicopter for the big event <laughs> and you know let's direct him in with table tennis mats and make it look like top gun and spoof it and be funny and so i've had that mix of the storytelling and journalism but also working in live events where i can really really push the boundaries or really kind of be dare to be creative so i think that's you know that's been massively massively fulfilling 
and I know um I think our shared love for storytelling I think mm-hmm. um, I don't know if you remember this when we met at the conference that was all we spoke about um I I just had given a little a talk on storytelling mm. and, and we were just talking how much we love storytelling and uh, the impact that it, that it can create and you were sharing stories about your previous visits to Amsterdam yeah and, yes. uh, <laughs> so there was a yeah there was a, a trip before when I'd spoken and yes, yes, my little I boy yeah he'd been asking me to bring back chewing gum for him and um so i sort of grabbed what i thought was chewing gum in the shop and it, oh this needs it we are on we are on podcast but um it kind of there's a great picture that accompanies this essentially i bought brightly colored kind of chewing gum sticks um and on the way to the airport i thought oh, i just really fancy trying the watermelon flavor one um and so i looked at them and i was like oh hang on and it guess what i bought my children sabi they were flavored rizzler wrappers <laughs> I was like, I think, you know, I think I'm in danger of being parent of the year. I think, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, turns out I'm not chewing gum. Pro- when you're not sure what you're buying in Amsterdam, be 100% <laughs> sure. You might, you might get trouble at the airport otherwise. Yes, and that's a cautionary tale there, Sabi. Absolutely. <laughs> and Sarah, yeah. what was the challenge? What was your main challenge that you faced uh, during that time? The- so, when I was a journalist, um, I think, I mean, I didn't necessarily consider it a challenge at the time because mm-hmm. it was, but I think probably even just getting your stories heard. I mean, I remember the kind of like the, the morning meeting and you had to really almost like you had to pitch for your story to be on air and things and explain why it was important. So explain mm-hmm. why it was important. Um, and I think that was always a challenge, but I sort of like, I think I relished that challenge or I, it made you sort of sense check and test your stories. But I think there were also big moments of, it felt really like a real injustice when, when your story wasn't commissioned or you obviously felt really kind of wedded to it. So you kind of would go away and then work harder on it. So I think there were those kind of moments, but there also the, the other challenge was the fact that, and probably why I am in my career now is it was really difficult to be on call 24 seven and it, yep. it was the biggest thing, you know, about me. And it probably still is, you know, my yep. friends still call me BBC Burbage. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I think there is a, there is a sort of thing that you, it does really become, you know, a, a big part of you. Yeah. Um, and I remember, you know, there were times I was called to a story at four in the morning and things like that. And I would be news reading breakfast radio and have to be there early. So it, yeah, you do have to work your life around it. That works much better when you're younger and only need four hours sleep. Mm. Um, and when you're not maybe juggling children and things. So I think that yeah. was, that was always a challenge, but Hey, Amazing. you know, Life should life should kind Absolutely. of interrupt along the way. I think. <laughs> you, you, in, when you have an illustrious career, when you have done so many things, I'm sure there are moments where you also faced some degree of adversity. Things not mm-hmm. going the way. Things you know you're not happy about. I wouldn't term them failures, but they're adversities. Uh, and uh, and you're such a positive person. You're you are radiating energy, positive vibes from the word go um how do you handle these adversities and how do you uh, come back on this path of positivity each time what's your yeah i'm 
No, I'm not sure I have that secret, Sabi. I think that's the other side of me. I think when I still carry quite a lot of frustration with me when I haven't been able to make things happen or when things kind of like, yeah, don't don't happen for whatever reason, I still struggle with that. And I think there's a kind of eternal optimist in me, but also that that struggles with the kind of the injustice or the relentless sort of tenacity maybe. Um, I think there's that thing where I really struggle with the unsolvable. So I think, um, for example, I you know, I was working on, in some of my recent change days, you're working on kind of how the, how the BBC might make some savings that would be through processes or things like um, products rather than through people. And some of those frustrations of not being able to unlock some of those and make those happen um, really, you know, weighed heavy on me because I felt that it was, you know, well, otherwise we might have to lose people and like kind of to make savings. So I think some of that burden and that adversity of seeing kind of projects not go as well as they could sometimes, um, seeing stakeholders misunderstand each other is really frustrating. I mean, that said, I mean, I don't give up and I'm, I'm kind of that eternal optimist in me is relentless and my brain is always ticking away at that kind of lateral way around it. Can we, you know, can we lighten this up? Can we throw a bit of humor in? Can we approach the conversation from a different way? So I think, but I think that's, that is kind of, you know, um, that is fueled by a healthy restlessness to get things done. So I think kind of the adversity, I, I kind of try and see as a challenge, but yeah, it doesn't sit well with me. I don't love it, but I think it makes, it makes it worth, all the more worthwhile when you have kind of got there maybe. So I think traveling optimistically helps definitely. Um, I agree. It definitely does. And I, I know that because I've tried both ways. Yeah. <laughs> have you? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I think kind of believing that there will be a way or that there yeah. can be, you know, or, or believing that there's a, maybe a reason that, that this had to stall right now mm-hmm. is helpful. I think the other thing that I learned a lot through lockdown is um, also just remembering your own change curve and where you are on things. And I mean, I would say that wouldn't my work in change, but one of the most valuable things that we kind of told our leaders to do was kind of check in with your team, see where they are, you know, are they, are they angry? Are they in denial? Are they, you know, are they experimenting? Because yeah. wherever you are on that curve, it, you know, it can really clash with other people in the room. So I think quite often adversity is people sort of like looking at things from different prisms and that mm-hmm. causes issues. So I think taking a step back and trying to understand and unlock, but also just appreciating that sometimes it's just not for you to solve. Very well said. Thank you. So uh, from adversity, I moved to my favorite topic. And I think that's your favorite topic is mm-hmm. right now. Change. Oh, don't say that word. <laughs> <laughs> It's the it's the word that is such uh, a buzzword. Surely we've got a new buzzword. one for it now. Exactly. Like everywhere you go, every organizations, every place, everybody is uh, aiming for it, hoping for it, uh, using it in every um, you know newsletters, every press conferences. It's like the one thing that can you know it's the Columbus egg that can solve every yeah. problem that the organization or team are facing. Well, to some 
extent it can if it's well planned well well thought of mm-hmm. but um i think we all see departments organizations that can quickly effectively adapt change transformation mm-hmm. and you know make a shift from uh like shift in their uh, profits in their income in their motivation in their employee engagement uh, in 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 their whole role model where others uh, are struggling to do as a change yeah. expert what do you think maybe two or three factors that are extremely uh, that are underlining between organizations that are able to change and organizations and teams that are not able to change what are the deciding factors in your opinion oh my goodness and i'm not really i wouldn't say i'm an expert i think that because that's probably my first one is actually keep humble um like i think kind of you don't know it all and you are yeah. going into unknown territory and i think if you need some some kind of like change jargon to a company that then it's all to do with iterating and and being agile and kind of being able to respond um to things as they happen So I think yes I think kind of there is that being able to adapt and iterate as with what what will help you change and kind yeah. of like learn along the way. Um and I mean you hear everyone saying about you know get comfortable with the uncomfortable, you know, be able to fail fast and kind of like learn quickly. Mm-hmm. I do think I think those things are really true. I think people say them many many times and sometimes don't pause to actually think what they mean and i know i've been guilty of that as well mm-hmm. um i think when you really think what those things mean it keeps you humble and it keeps you alive to kind of new voices or things in the room that you hadn't considered yeah. um and i think that's really really fundamental in change because you are moving into unknown territory quite often you might have a quite kind of core vision but sometimes um you don't really know what that's going to play out like so certainly for me like working in um in kind of on things like the new digital newsroom some of the technology is always emerging and it might be that you kind of end up working with completely different products um by the end of it or you know you're still finding out and assessing what's going to be the best but also it might it will be completely determined by your people and what they want to use and what works well and yeah. kind of how they want to work so kind of i think just keeping people at the heart of it keeping your core message at the heart of it um is also my next kind of thing so i think mm-hmm. getting those basics right that drum beat you know what is it that we're doing because yeah. people really need to know and they need to know continuously because everyone will go off on a tangent including the whole project team and but it's because you know they they care about different things but that core message that drum beat that kind of key focus will always help drive change because i think sometimes and what you were talking about yeah is everybody saying it yeah. but i don't think there's that many people really walking um, it walking it yeah i don't think they are so i think there's kind of a lot of talking going on mm-hmm. and everybody knows things can change or could change or might be having to need to change so they kind of are putting it on their newsletters but i think you also observe the people who are really being the change and really living it they're the ones that are really inspiring people and they're the ones that are really seeing things shift so i think kind of that that kind of daring to be that dancer showing how it's done um and maybe changing the routine along the way is kind of it's really the the kind of like the, the strategic that's the strategic person yeah like kind of like it won't just happen because you said it will you know you have to really show how it's going to happen so i think 
And, and I think that brings me to my other thing. You know, you were talking about it needing to be planned, and I completely agree. Mm-hmm. I am allergic to most project documents, though. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I should also declare that um, because obviously I, my background is having been used to pitching an idea and then delivering it sometimes by lunchtime or the end of the day. Yep. Um, so I need more discipline quite often around me in the form of other team members to kind of really do the planning and do the sense checking. But I also think there's a real art in making it feel like part of the plan and look mm. seamless so I think, yes, be planned and have done your sort of stakeholder analysis and really been thoughtful and paused and thought about different frameworks to use. But maybe don't show your workings. I think I'm not a fan of like it looking like a project or something being done to people, but I think taking them on a journey and making it look like, you know, it's much better to bring people in to something they want to get involved in. Yep. And so I think that kind of making it look seamless, making it look like great fun, you know, and really kind of injecting that. Why would you? Because if you wouldn't make that change, then why, why would everybody else around? Exactly. Exactly. Fully agree. Fully agree. And uh, now that you are in the world of change and you are leading it, uh, are there any best practices that you brought from the world of journalism from, from your time being a journalist and broadcaster? Many It was prob- very different way of working. Have you brought any best practices or things that you did to the world of change? Because you think this this way of working will really help us move faster. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I wouldn't say, I think I'm still learning as well, but I also think storytelling, if we go back to storytelling, any change journey is going to be grounded in a story of we're here now, this is where we're going and this is why. So kind of really tapping into the why it matters and why people would even want to hear this story in the first place is huge. So I would say that is a fundamental core part of vision and mission and all of those words within change. So I think storytelling and the narrative um, is absolutely key um, to be able to express where you're from, where you're going from and to, and where you're kind of, how you're going to get it done. I think that's, that's just, that's just huge because otherwise people don't even know what you're doing and you've just got a load of people doing a role, doing a role that starts with change. (laughs) I I Um, fully agree. I fully agree with you. you. You said what's in my heart. Thank you. (laughs) but I think that's absolutely key and then the other thing I think and I'm not sure it's the best practice that comes from journalism Mm -hmm. but um, I think it is a best practice that when you see it in a room it works better and that is to do with inclusion Uh, so I think a fundamental is about having the right people in the room Mm -hmm. and some of the challenges we've often had are around kind of you know reaching our missing audience so you know why aren't we reaching younger people why you know what can we do to reach younger audiences and new audiences? So quite a lot of the time, it will be remembering to have them help build the solution too. And I mean, that sounds really fundamental, but it will quite often be forgotten when you've had four or five meetings already with lots of clever people that all look the same <laughs> and come up with the same ideas. So I think once you remember to, you know, celebrate difference, realize it's a superpower, have lots of different people in the room to come up with a solution. You get that's really good practice too, because I remember being in a meeting once before, and three of us had the same handbag, and two of us had the same phone cover, and I was like, ah, we're probably not going to all come up with very different ideas here. And you sort of do realize people tribe and clone, but actually, 
if you're really going to look, if you're trying to be on the cusp of innovation and new, then you probably really want to stretch that and really look for somebody who's kind of going to stretch your ideas. So, um, and be inclusive, you know, like kind of, you know, otherwise, otherwise you miss something, you know, you design it wrong. Yeah, it's not just having the people in the room, but giving them the comfort to speak up. Otherwise, what's the point of having um, different type of people if they feel like, oh my God, it's 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 a very technical meeting and should I open my mouth because I'm a creative person, but giving the yeah. creative person the liberty to and, and, and the place to speak up so that they can also include that. I, I, yeah, that's that's about dancing and parties for me. Sally. Exactly. Exactly. Is, what is it? The quote that, and I think, um, I think it's you know, diversity is being invited to the party. Inclusion is being asked to dance. Exactly. And then I would stretch that one step further because I actually think it's about belonging. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that belonging is dancing like no one's like no one's watching, <laughs> you know. So I think that freedom to be yourself and making sure people are supported enough to not just be in a room and not just be a, a tick box or kind of there around the table, but actually to speak up and to share their brilliant ideas and their input. I think that that is belonging and feeling comfortable and a part of it is that is really, you know, that, that beats any kind of diversity or inclusion or any kind of strategy that is making sure that people know that they're there to be them. I, that's really, really well said. Dance like nobody's watching. And when you can do that, may, maybe not literally, but even metaphorically. I oh, know I do that too. Oh, me, too, <laughs> me, too, me, too <laughs> me too. But even if it's metaphorically at meetings, at discussions, at town halls, that's when you feel you've really achieved, uh, an organization has been able to achieve that. Completely. One last question before I let you go. And this mm. is a question I ask to all my guests. Um, it's the show is called Method in Madness, and there is no fun without a little bit of madness. And uh, has there been a moment of madness in your life or career that somebody told, like, you know, people told you don't do this or, you know, gave you advice, but you just went with your guts and uh, thinking. And today, when you look back, you feel like, wow what was I thinking? I was so brave. I was so mad. What has been your moment of madness? Oh my goodness. So I've been thinking about this, but obviously not long enough because I haven't got the absolute corker ready for you. <laughs> but I, what I do think is I think, I think I probably am that person quite regularly. And I think that's probably made up of of a series of, I call them kind of boom, boom, boom moments. Mm-hmm. And it's when your heart's going. And it's when you can't not say something or, or it's when you kind of like, and I think that is to do with being you mm. um, and realizing that you've got to just be true to yourself. And I think sometimes my madness is having the big creative idea. So mm. if you take my madness as a lot of people are like, why on earth are you working in change and strategy? You know, you used to be on the telly. Um, so maybe that's my madness in a small way, but equally, <laughs> but it isn't really because I now get to be a different person quite regularly in a room yeah. um, and I will come up with those big creative ideas. But what's, what's sort of glorious about that is daring to go with it. And I think I, I do embrace a bit of the mad and a bit of the crazy mm-hmm. quite regularly. And I think it's healthy because I sometimes don't know where I'm going with it. So I would be in a, I would be in an interview and pitching an idea. And that's how I got probably the best job I've ever done, which was, you know, like um, 
the leading school report through through 2012, which was 70,000 young people reporting across the country from different like Olympic locations and um, and their schools and sharing their stories. And um, that was because in the interview, I, I pitched for us to have big school trip to the Olympic Park. And that meant bringing children from right around the country to a building site, essentially, as the Olympic Park was being built. Why don't we be there? You know, as it's building up, and, in, and interview Lord Co. and have children from right around the country, and and I got called on it, Sabby, and I got told to yeah, do it, do it, and we did, and that was that was a mad day, and that was a brilliant day, and there were moments on that day when when I think people in our team were like, you know, oh, what do we, you know, is everybody, everyone knows what we're doing. We're on every single radio station across the country, you know, across the BBC's nations and regions. We're, oh gosh, we're going live on the one o'clock. Oh, we're doing this. Um, but we, you know, it was, it turned out, it was a good idea. It was a good moment of madness. And that was just me letting my creativity kind of go with it. And I might have over, if I'd have overthought that, I might never have said that as an idea, or I might never have, or I might have found all the reasons not to do it. Exactly. But I think kind of daring to sort of like say, do you know what? We're gonna we're just gonna sing at the end of this meeting, and I've rewritten this song, and we're gonna go for it. And I remember my boss looking at horror, at horror at me when I did that one year at Christmas. But my goodness, it was you know we were just bringing a new team together. We we sang the twelve days of Christmas and did all the highlights of delivery. <laughs> And and he was like, I'm not really going to sing, am I? And am I Sarah? And I was like, Yeah, you are, Robin. I'm really sorry. Um, and and we sang, and it was t- we we broke through that cringe. And I think sometimes that's the madness that just like cuts through to actually what makes us tick sometimes, and what makes us human, you know. Well, that's my kind of madness anyway. Just the, the bit that makes people laugh, the bit that makes people kind of. Yeah, break down the barriers. And what happened then? I mean, that happened before lockdown. We were bringing the team together. But that made the team so comfortable yeah. that when we did have our all staffs, we had we had members of the team performing like songs they'd written and things like that at the end of our all staff meetings and kind of it opened up a lot more joy, it opened up a lot more authenticity, I suppose. So yeah, I think madness is the boom, boom, boom moment. So absolutely oh, I'm Man, just think like everybody's listening and dance like nobody's watching. Totally, <laughs> completely. Well, yeah. Sarah, I hope you preserve your madness because mm-hmm. with your madness, not only you churn creativity, beautiful ideas, but you spread this positivity and this energy everywhere in all the conversations we have had so far. I always felt that and I'm sure everybody around you feels that. And Mm. thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for sharing that energy, that madness, that, that (laughs) positivity in this podcast, in this last 30 minutes in method in madness. It's, it's been truly an honor talking to you. It's been a joyful ride. It's been a ride full of smiles, laughter, a little bit of madness. (laughs) And thank you for uh, sharing all of that with method in madness. Oh, so lovely talking to you, Sabi. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that was yet another episode of Method in Madness. Like I told you, this episode was going to be fun and mad. I will be back in a few weeks with yet another method, yet another madness, and yet another guest. Till then, stay mad. Because if you want to have fun in life, madness is the mantra to it.